Typically, we are the show that covers horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. But this being the holiday season, and if I'm able to get my ducks in a row, this episode dropping on Christmas morning, I am joined today by my dear friend and co-host, Mr. Brian Kuyper. Brian, how are we? Doing great. Glad to be on uh, winter break and talking one of my favorite movies with you. Oh, that's what I want to talk about. What movie are we bringing to the audiences today? Uh, From 1946, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Quite a horror movie, right? Yeah. Quite a horror movie. Although there are, it's a dark movie. (laughs) It is a dark movie. Absolutely. It's a very dark dark movie. movie. And we're going to definitely talk about that. But if you are listening to this on the morning the show drops, Uh, We want to say thank you for making us a part of your Christmas morning. I'd like to imagine that you've unwrapped your presents, you're wearing your Christmas sweater, and right now, like, you're preparing either, like, a big Christmas brunch or dinner, and you are spending some time with Brian and I, and I personally can't think of a better way for anyone to spend Christmas than with with me in your kitchen, (laughs) judging how you're cooking that roast, but... Yeah, we're here to talk about one of my favorite movies, which is odd, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about first, I guess, Brian, when did you come across? Like, This is such a ubiquitous oh, movie. Gosh, yeah. It feels like it's just something we're always with. But when did you first actually watch this movie, and how did it become one of your favorite films? Well, part of it was it was just on all the time when I was growing up. Uh, it doesn't really do that anymore. Everyone talks about it being on all the time, but it's just isn't shown on TV very often anymore. Um, well, and there are reasons for that. Uh, but uh, when I was a kid, this was all that was on two days straight. You know, so you go to my uncle's house or wherever, and there would be jokes, you know, nothing to watch. Oh, It's a Wonderful Life is going to be starting any minute now. Um, yeah. So one year, my mom just said, hey, let's just watch the thing. And actually, you know, we've seen bits and pieces of it all these years. Let's actually watch the thing from beginning to end and see see how we like it. And uh, we watched it on PBS one year because, you know, no commercials. and Made you feel smart. Yeah, well, and it was also... Uh, still the black and because they would show the colorized yep. version sometimes, yeah. which is just like. Plus, it's your gross. tax dollars. You might yeah, as might well, as well you're use throwing them. your tax dollars. You might as well use it, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and so we watched it uh, beginning to end, and we're just kind of floored by it. Uh, this is the first old movie outside of like the classic Universal monster movies that really spoke to me. That I was like, oh. Uh, it, it just felt very, there are a lot of things about it that felt very current. It felt very um, relatable. 
kind of universal about it. And so I uh, recorded it off a of TV one year again and, you know, watched that over and over until I actually bought a legit videotape and then yep. a DVD and now the 4K. And just this last week, I went and saw it on the big screen for the first time. Oh, did you take your son? Uh, no, we took my daughter and my wife. So um, mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun. Um, now, the kids, they've all seen it. They don't. Yep. I mean, they were a little young probably the first time. Uh, but they were curious. So we said, okay, might as well. Um, my wife and I watch it every Christmas Eve, you know, w- yeah. while we're wrapping gifts and the like. And so it's it's just a, it's just a really special movie that you can either yeah. kind of take as the warm blanket or you can really focus on and get a lot out of, you know. Mm-hmm. So, And I would say of the two of us, of the whole Pod and Pendulum crew, but of the two of us for sure – like you are definitely one that appreciates classic cinema a lot more than I, not that I don't appreciate it, but I think like you actually dive into that realm a lot more. Was this one of those movies that maybe kind of sparked that? Definitely. Yeah. There's no doubt about it because this one was, it's very accessible for an older film. I I think that's one of the, it's, it paces the pace of this thing is incredible. You know, it's, it's kind of never a dull moment kind of movie. And, um, so it sort of became a gateway to, you know, like some of other Capra stuff. Sure. But then, you know, seeing things like, um, Oh, I don't know. Citizen Kane or, or some of the other big classics and then going more, into uh, more obscure stuff as I went along. But mm-hmm. yeah, this is uh, this was definitely one of the gateways for, for old Hollywood. I was much older when I first saw this movie. And I would say I went so as far to like actively avoid it sure. as a kid and a young adult because it was always on. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely one of those like things where I'm like, this thing is so all over the place and so everywhere that it can't be any good. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't want to watch this old black and white movie. (laughs) Right. I mean, they're watching it in French in Home Alone. They're they're watching it on the TV in Gremlins. I mean, it was everywhere. So there was kind of inescapable, you know. It was, you couldn't avoid it. And it wasn't until really probably within the past five years, I remember it was showing at, in Boston, uh, there is the Brattle Cinema in Harvard Square, part of Cambridge Mass. Nice. It is like an old one-screen movie house that shows a lot of indie movies uh, and a lot of like repertoire screenings, a lot of double features. And every year, they like this year they did on Friday night they did Black Christmas at 7 p.m. and it's a one. Oh, sorry, it's a Wonderful Life at 7 p.m. and Black Christmas, the original at 9:30. Sure. Yeah. And the next night was like Die Hard and It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, I was under the weather and couldn't go. I had yeah. plans on, on going. Um, it, but it was that theater that like they were showing it on my mother's birthday. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you drive into the city? Let's go to like a little dessert place beforehand and then go see this movie. Uh, it'll be a nice kind of thing to do for your birthday. And I was floored with how this movie spoke to me mm-hmm. um, really kind of, and maybe if I had watched it at a younger age, I wouldn't appreciate it now. Like I wouldn't want to watch it now. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've already seen it. Um, but I really loved what this movie had to say um, 
found it just really magnetic. And like you said, it whips by. Like it covers so much, but it really whips by. There's like no lag time yeah. in this whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's a two and a half and, hour movie, but it does yeah. not feel like that. Yeah. And there'll be points where I'm like, it's July and I just feel like watching. Yes. Like I don't feel like I have to watch it necessarily at Christmas. So, you know, we watch it at home. Like I picked up the 4K for it, uh, I think two years ago mm-hmm. or maybe it was last Christmas. My wife got me the 4K. And I don't have a 4K player yet. <laughs> I have a pretty good 4K movie collection, uh, but I haven't sprung for a player. Like sure. every time I go to buy one, I'm like, you know. I'm going to spend this 200 bucks on the family somehow sure, instead. Yeah. But we have it in 4K in streaming, so it, it does look really good even with that. So oh, it does, yeah. This is yeah. – in a, even this past year, like my daughter who's 12 was like, I want to watch that black and white Christmas movie. And we yeah. knew right away it was this because she had seen yeah. it before. And we watched it as a family watch like this past weekend, uh, partly to prep for this show, but also because we just wanted to watch it. Um, and like the whole time my daughter's like, it's so dark. Like this movie is mm-hmm. so dark mm-hmm. and she couldn't stop. And yeah, it's the thing you think about the ending and you feel like it's going to be this like saccharine experience, but it is a, it earns that ending. Yeah, it really yeah. does. It is one of the rare movies that like the ending of Rocky uh-huh. gets me to like tear up every single time. Yeah. Um, the end, uh, the end of the Royal Tenenbaums, when Chaz says to, when Ben Stiller says to Gene Hackman, like, it's been a really hard year, Dad. And he's like, mm-hmm. I know. Like, that breaks me every time. Yeah. And the end of this, when Harry says to, you know, to my brother George, the richest man in Bedford Falls, like, I can't not break, like, every yeah. single time uh i watched this even writing that up like i just found myself having just to getting yeah choked yeah. up well one of the things that was funny was we saw this at the tcm screening so it was like fathom event kind of thing um i'd love to see this projected like in 35 someday but you know yeah. it's, it's unlikely uh with where i live so we uh took in that screening but uh ben ben mankowitz of uh, tcm he introduces and sort of does a little tag at the end and the first thing he says at the end of the movie <laughs> is if you don't cry during that last scene you don't have a soul that's a scientific right. fact uh and we kind of my my wife and i looked at each other we've got souls my daughter was like i didn't cry right. <laughs> uh, she said she cried at other but parts of the movie it was just kind of funny I, um i think it comes it with comes age. with age i I, I totally with... agree yeah because when you're young and the whole world is ahead of you and there's like and i say this a lot to kids because you and i both work in education uh-huh and one of the hardest conversations I have to have with kids who just like don't get it or they're just not capable of, of, of focusing or they don't see the importance of like their education. Mm-hmm. It's like, look, you're it. Cause I work with like kids that are just on the cusp of high school. I'm like, what's going to happen in the near future is like, there are going to be more do- doors that close to you. Like right now, everything is open to you. Yep. And what's going to happen really quickly is like doors are going to close to you that are never going to reopen. And I think as you know, you and I get older, you know, I'm over the halfway point unless there's some technological miracle that extends right, our life exactly. by another decade or so. Mm-hmm. There are more days behind me than in front of me. And I look back at 
what I've done and what I wanted to do. And there's a bit of wistfulness. there. Sure. Um, and I think you also realize everything I've done, I've not done anything in my own. Like someone has been there to offer some support mm-hmm. or kindness or give me a boost. And you realize when you have that, just like how important that is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this movie just gathers more meaning the older I get. Um, and it becomes a, a much more emotional watch the older I get. Uh, but I remember even when I was in college, you know, like the scene where he's yelling at his kids and things like that mm-hmm. really affected me. And, you know, before I had uh, children of my own and it just now seeing that it's like, oh, man, not only does that get to me, I can I've done that. <laughs> you know, that's happened, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it might be my favorite scene. in the movie. It's, it's a great scene. Yeah. Um, you know, I know we'll we'll talk about that a little more. I'm sure when we we're going to talk about elements mm-hmm. of the plot. But I mean, that uh, and there, there are like constant things that we um, my wife and I sort of joke about during that. Like we'll come up to each other and go, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah. Excuse you for what? I burped. Um, yeah. <laughs> we do that all the time. And when that scene came on in the movie, my, my daughter looked at both of us and went, that's where you got that. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty fun. Um, just, just the yeah. line, like, why do we have well, to have so many of these damn kids anyway? You I know. know. <laughs> like that, when we watch that, I was laughing so hard. I had to rewind it. And I think my poor kiddo was horrified. <laughs> um yeah just just the frustration you feel by the end of that scene because a lot of it is kind of funny at first but then you know he goes over and just sort of trashes the models he's built and his little station Mm -hmm. over there and it's just like and he just terrifies them and uh you feel aftermath of that it's like what did you want go on play play you know yeah when you try to make it up yeah you're like all right i've got it out of me but you realize you've gone too far yeah. and now now you're angry at yourself yeah. but you're projecting that anger yeah. at others yeah it's so yeah anyway <laughs> so let's talk about the background of this movie a little it's a fascinating background it's based on the story the greatest gift by philip van doren stern it said based on the novel but it's 40 pages yeah. um he tried to publish this in the late thirties, but there were no takers. It's a 40 page book. So he turned it into a Christmas card for friends and family in 1943, which it's a 40 page book that he turned (laughs) into a Christmas card. card. So I don't quite understand that. Um, Mm -mm. It ends up landing on the desk of a RK studio, RKO producer, uh, David Hempstead, who bought the rights of it for ten grand, thinking like this would be a great starring vehicle for Cary Grant. Um, and I watched some videos on like the differences between the movie and the book, and it's they're pretty vast. Like basically, sure. the book starts at the end. The book starts with Bailey on the bridge waiting to jump off, and he's met by the stranger. And the stranger, like, shows him what it would have been like if he had never been in Bedford Falls. Uh, But you don't get any of the backstory before that. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, like, there's no Potter in the story. Okay. Uh, There's no worry about uh, 
George going to jail. Like there's not that bank fraud hanging over his sure. head. It's just that he's bored. Like he's like, all right, I've been, he works for his dad who is still alive and he's done a lot of good works, but he's basically got that wanderlust mm-hmm. and Mary is married, but she's married to kind of a douche. Um, and at the end, you know, and I guess like he travels through the town as a broom salesman or something. Huh. That's his cover. So you don't have that real emotional wallop that the Pottersville scenes do. Sure. And at the end of the story, he just goes home, kisses his wife, and like everything is hunky dory. Uh-huh. Um, so it's far, far different. He's just not despondent. He's just like, eh, you know, like I've kind of wait. It's like the comic book guy from The Simpsons at that scene where there's like a nuclear warhead rushing at him, and he's like, oh, this is my life. my life. Yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> that story. Gotcha. Um, what can you? So this makes its way to uh, Frank Capra, and it's the movie that Capra wants to do. As his first post-World War II project, he'd been uh, in Europe and I believe in the Asian Pacific as well, mm-hmm. uh, shooting documentaries, like shooting the Why We, the Why Fight, we Fight series. Documentary yeah. mm-hmm. series. So yeah. what can you, I mean, because honestly, outside of this and Mr. Deeds goes to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Mr. Deeds Smith, goes to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Mr. Smith, yeah. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Um, I've not watched anything else from Capitol. Okay. What, can you tell me about him as a filmmaker? Well, I mean, he was uh, well known for movies th- his that had sort of a sweet tooth, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so movies that were uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, for example, is um, um, about a guy who suddenly becomes rich, and uh, you know he 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 uh, experiences uh, this. But you know, here's the thing: Capra is sort of given. You know, he was known for what. <laughs> critics called Capricorn. Um, so corny movies that <laughs> um, didn't have a lot of depth to them. But, and, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is sort of the, besides this one, sort of the quintessential Capra film. Uh, you get an ordinary guy um, thrust into sort of an extraordinary circumstance and the change that he's able to... Um, to make because of his, you know, everything turns out rosy in the end in most of his movies. However, there's real darkness in in a lot of his movies that I think gets overlooked um, because, I mean, you can't have the triumphant ending of Mr. Smith without that filibuster scene, you know, where he's basically shut down by the machine and, um, and passes out because everyone has turned against him, you know, but then you get, Claude Rain saying, oh, it was my fault. I did it and all that stuff. Um, but uh, I, I think my f- favorite, maybe besides this one, though, is uh, It Happened One Night, which is just a great mm-hmm. screwball comedy. I mean, yep. the template for the romantic comedy is essentially created in that film. And it's a road movie. It's still extraordinarily charming and funny. Um, Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert. So um, that uh, also that won him the Oscar, right? Uh, and there, there he has a more diverse filmography, I think, than he's often given credit for. But he's sort of known for the wide-eyed, yeah. optimistic, aw shucks kind of characters and the Americana mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and his most enduring films are that. So, 
it's fair to to call him that filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, he talks. I found a quote from him here. He talks about wanting all of his pictures to have like a positive message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found this quote where he says, "My films must let every man, woman, and child know that God loves them, and that peace and salvation will become a reality only when they all learn to love one another." And as yeah. far as messages go, there are worse messages to yeah. have than like peace only comes when we accept one another, yeah. which is still something that we don't do to this very That's day. That's right. I mean, all of his heroes are extraordinarily kind people, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and uh, that that is he sort of champions the um hard work, optimism, and kindness, uh, you know, in, in his films very much. So, so he, he wins the Oscar for it happened one night. Mm-hmm. He also wins, uh, best director, uh, Mr. Deed goes to town uh-huh. and which I have not seen. That's you. the, Me yeah, uh, I have that. I've seen Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler. <laughs> I, have no, I haven't seen either one. I've got Mr. Deeds goes to town. You know, I've got the DVD. I've just, for whatever reason, it's been in my watch list forever. I just haven't, mm-hmm. haven't got Part of it is Gary Cooper. Uh, I don't know. Something about Gary Cooper never has done it for me, but you know, love them in high news. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there are a few movies that I think he's great, but uh, for whatever yeah. reason, um, he's also like the follow up to uh, it's a wonderful life is a movie called uh, meet John Doe. Um, mm-hmm. Now that's a dark movie, <laughs> also yeah. a Christmas movie um, and a message movie uh, that makes you go, what? He was a Republican. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's talk about that. I, I will say that the Adam Sandler Mr. Deeds is a fun movie. Yeah. Nona Ryder sure. looks amazing in it as she always does. Sure. Uh, you know, I love Adam Sandler. I'm an Adam Sandler uh, uh, apologist through and through. Good. Um, so this is what you know. In researching this, this is what shocked me is because you when I think of Capra, I think like. There is no one making a better argument for like liberal democracy mm-hmm. and progressive progressive. <laughs> there is nobody making a better argument for liberal democracy and being progressive than Frank Capra, who yeah. all of his films are based on like we need to work together as a collective yeah. and we're better as a society when we're boosting up the lowest yeah. of us, when everybody is on some sort of evil, even ground. He's a lifelong Republican. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, as I thought about that, because I mean, the only thing I could think of <laughs> was if he was more of like a Teddy Roosevelt Republican, you know, the trust busting and the, uh, um, you know, the small champion of the small business, the regulations or the mm-hmm. progressivism of the, of the sort of Teddy Roosevelt Republican era, um, which to some extent in the thirties and forties, you're still experiencing uh, yeah. is that version of the Republican party, um, which, you know, didn't really vastly change from that until Reagan um, and yeah. Goldwater. But, I would say yeah. like the Republican Party, as we recognize it in 2022, starts with Goldwater yeah. and then really crystallizes with Reagan. Yeah. And you start and it's not until Reagan that you see like the tax rate mm-hmm. cut from like 90 percentile 
at the top of the chain to like what it is right now, which is, I believe in like the mid to high 30s. Sure. And, and you know, honestly it was, uh, it was a Democrat who did that first. It was Kennedy, <laughs> you know? Right. So it's just sort of, um, I think the parties have just grown so much farther apart for that, yeah. that for now for us to look at, uh, someone like Capra and his films and his messages and say, that's unrecognizable to us, yeah. uh, in, in the modern era. Even, but even then, oh yeah, he was a hardcore. Like he would be not unrecognizable from what we see as a republic. He was very anti-government. Like he was very anti-New Deal. Yeah, it was very anti. Like he felt like the government had no place intervening in the uh, prosperity of Americans and infusing the policies of the New Deal into everybody's life sure. he thought that should have been handled on an individual level like he very destroyed he actually and as he would go on to get acute be accused of communism through specifically it's a wonderful <laughs> right life. the irony he was that. also like kind of an informant for the fbi yeah. as well yeah. um so he was like a trust uh, a hardcore republican like bit of a chauvinist mm-hmm. um the script writers for this movie francis goodrich and albert hackett like they depart the picture due to his condescension uh francis goodrich the screenwriter who would refer to him as that horrid man um, <laughs> i hadn't heard that before he and i've got a quote here we'll talk about later on about why we feel like he is um so closely aligned with like Roosevelt values of the New Deal. And you, you look at Eisenhower. Eisenhower is a Republican. He gave us the national highways. Right. System. Yeah. You know, there yeah. was a idea back yeah. then that like I, I what I don't look, I, I save the one star review uh, folks. But what I don't understand is like when persons that work in government think that government shouldn't exist like that i don't understand sure like you this job that i have shouldn't exist isn't good that's not a good philosophy yeah. um so it's we'll talk a little bit more about his politics as we get into the movie um Stewart is hired for the role like he'd worked the capra on you can't take it with you and and mr smith uh, Smith goes to Washington. Ginger Rogers turns down the role of Mary, saying it's too bland. Which she's not wrong. I think like I think the role. Tra- sure, Donna Reed transcends she does. the part as it's written. Yeah, yeah. Donna Reed adds such luminousness to the if that's a word <laughs> to yeah. to that role. I mean, uh, I, and Ginger Rogers is fine. I don't have a problem with Ginger Rogers, but I cannot imagine. Her playing this. Yeah. It's a different movie. There's not a lot of dancing aside from that one scene. (laughs) um, The movie gets released uh, on a limited basis, December 1946, in order to qualify for the Oscars. And it is nominated for Best Picture. Uh Um, Gets a wide release January 7th, 1947. And it bombs to such a degree, critically and commercially, that it ruins Capra's career as a commercial filmmaker. Well, what's interesting, he started this whole company, Liberty Films, you know, to make sort of his own movies. And he had been one of the most successful directors before the war uh, with, you know, several of the movies that we've named already. Um, He never quite 
reach those heights again afterward. And I think the reason is, is, I mean, you look at the era of the post-war era and you're into film noir. You're into dark, heavy stuff uh, that doesn't have that sort of redeeming ending um, or that aw shucks quality going through it. What did win Best Picture that year, uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, which, if you haven't seen that, that's a terrific movie. It's have not. Seen yeah, it. it's it's a lot of people look at the runtime. It's like three hours long, and and mm-hmm. just kind of go, nope, I don't know if I can do that. But that movie is about soldiers returning home from the war, and the adjustment period that goes on, and it's a very frank film. I mean, you look at 1946, and you don't think that is possible, uh, but you watch that movie, and it's like they, yeah, they really went there. Uh, with that movie and that is what I think audiences were ready for we they had just lived through not only a war period for four years but a depression for 10 so audiences were ready for reality and for whatever reason you know it's sort of like you know the 70s marking this period of sort of darkness as well uh in uh, in the theaters uh so I think it makes sense that, you know, he lost his lost his shirt, lost his company um, over over this one movie uh, being a failure at the box office. Um, uh, It's just kind of a fascinating story about how it this is this is one of the true cult movies, you know. Yeah. And let's read some of these reviews. Uh, I, I pulled a few quotes here regarding. The reviews were with uh, It's a Wonderful Life in its day, like as it was released. So, uh, Brian, do you want to read this first yeah. one from Bosley Crowther from the New York Times? Bosley Crowther, this guy, he, he was a, <laughs> he, he could turn a phrase. Let's put it this way. Um, the weakness of this picture from this reviewer's point of view is the sentimentality of it. It's illusory concept of life. Mr. Capra's nice people are charming. His small town is quite is a quite beguiling place and his pattern for solving problems is most optimistic and facile, but somehow they all resemble theatrical attitudes rather than average realities. Ouch. And the thing is, that's not uncommon criticism for Capra films, you know, that it is uh, the sentimentality of it. Exactly. And then also with from Manny Farber, The New Republic, to make his points, Capra always takes an easy, simple-minded path that doesn't give much credit to the intelligence of the audience. <laughs> so he's saying that he's like spoon feeding the audience. And I would argue against that in the case of this movie. I would too. I think that there's a lot of depth here to like Bailey's George Bailey's plight, mm-hmm. uh, especially the realities of this, this town that he's working with and the people he's working with. Um, you might argue that like he's always taking the right path and never taking the easy way out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not easy for him to do that. Like, it's no. not, I'm going to do the right thing and then be happy about it. Like, there's a lot of misery. And part of what makes that so good is Stewart's performance. Uh, you can just see the darkness in his... I mean, uh, I don't know if you put this in the notes or not, but um, Jimmy Stewart was a World War II flyer. I mean, he had seen real yeah. action. He had uh, really seen battle. He had seen some very dark and frightening things. And yeah. he returned um, from the war, and you can see in this film that he still has that 
in his eyes. He still projects some of that in this film. I mean, he he readjusted quite well, but the movies that he does after this um, are dark. I mean, the Anthony Mann westerns, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock films that he did are real dark stuff. Yeah, there's there's no shortage of reasons why he would go from, say, being Copper's right hand man, like, you know, to making things like Rear Window. In Vertigo, Vertigo, you know, and becoming like a a, a staple of of um, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, team in like the 1950s. Like you could see the appeal Mm -hmm. of that kind of like darker material as a way to kind of work. I mean, that's artists talk about it all the time. Like they use their art. It's a way to work through traumatic experience. Absolutely. So, So Copper chalks this up in part as well as his. Uh, disillusionment uh, with the um, more liberal and loose values of Hollywood heading into the 1950s as the end of his career. Like he kind of also lost interest in making movies. So I have this quote from his autobiography and it's pretty fucking bleak. I haven't read So that, that yeah. idea of like, well, maybe it was like a Roosevelt Republican. It's like, well, maybe not. <laughs> this would fit right in on Fox News in 2022. Sure. So it's the winds of change blew through the dream factories of make-believe, tore it, uh, crinoline tatters, the hedonists, the homosexuals, the hemophiliac bleeding hearts, the god-haters, the quick-buck artists who substituted shock for talent. 50s are when Corman came up as well, right? Uh, Yeah, late 50s. When Corman was, yeah, he's, he's, he's more right. 60s, but yeah. This is from 1972 when he wrote yeah. this. So well, well, you look at well, uh, Val Luton and things like that yep. in the 40s. I'm looking at, I just did a, an examination of... Uh, of cat people and that movie is yep. gay 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 uh you yeah. know i mean for example um mm-hmm. so there's a lot going on here that you know it's oh, i got a different world more here they, <laughs> they, they, the quick buck artists who substituted shock for talent all cried shake them rattle them god is dead Long live pleasure. Nudity? Yeah. Wife swapping? Yeah. Sounds like Pottersville. <laughs> yeah, it does. Liberate yeah. the world from prudery. Emancipate our films from morality. Kill for thrill. Shock, shock. To hell with the good and man. Dredge up as evil. Shock, shock. And then he added, Practic- uh, practically all the Hollywood filmmaking of today is stooping to cheap, salacious pornography and a crazy bastardization of a great art to compete for the patronage of deviates and <laughs> masturbators. Well, I mean, okay, so uh, I, 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 he's I, writing this at the birth of New Hollywood. Yeah, because you're looking at the at yeah the late '60s and early '70s is when yeah. you've got you know Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch, and you've yeah. got yeah, the graduate, yeah, the graduate, and but then you know you're also talking about horror films. You're talking about uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. You're talking. Uh, Roger Corman, like you mentioned, and and but even like Hammer had gone nudity mm-hmm. uh, and all kinds of things by that point. Um, so, hey, you know, um, the world changed. I tell you, uh, when yeah. when you look at the, the when the Hayes Code ended and and uh, the ratings system came in, I mean, it's just a different world. Yeah. So, and I'm always. I always want to be careful of ascribing modern day morality and social mores, which a lot, you know, a lot of things that were not acceptable mm-hmm. 50 years ago are 
much more accepted now. And I think sure. we hopefully and look, it's not to say that we're a completely tolerant society, but I think that there's a lot better understanding and hopefully a lot more openness to say like saying something like being queer is wrong, a hedonist is sure. wrong, the bleeding heart is wrong. Right. I would like to think that just based on his art that he would his views would shift, you know, towards like if he made these movies now, his attitude would be different from what we're seeing right here because I, it's hard to reconcile that statement <laughs> it is. with what you see. <laughs> it on really is, yeah. In this movie, so. yeah, yeah. So, and it's to the degree that like it's investigated by the FBI and the House for Un-American uh, Activities Committee as a movie that promotes communism. Right. Um, partly because of the portrayal of Lionel Barrymore as Potter being a Scrooge-like figure. So I'm wondering, Brian, how does a commercial and critical failure that torpedoes the career of a six-time nominated, three-time award-winning Oscar director that has him investigated as a communist by the FBI. How does this go on to become the the beloved and cherished classic? And how does it enjoy that status today? What is it? It's copyright lapsed. Copyright (laughs) error. (laughs) Which is just, it fell into the public domain. That is just one of these um, incredible things about this thing. George Romero should have remade this movie. Yeah. At one point, yeah, because it's you know horror fans. Every time you see Night of the Living Dead on screen, uh-huh. you know it's the same reason. Um, and stations realized they could show this over and over mm-hmm. and over again, and really not have to pay. Yeah. They, I think, they had to pay because it was based on a book. Yep. They had to pay a nominal rights fee because it's a based on credit. But it wasn't until like the 90s where the copyright I think or the rights were picked back up. Yeah, Paramount owns it now. Uh yeah. so so good for them. I mean, one of the things that is is fascinating about it cuz so many movies that fall into the public domain. Movies fall into the public domain all the time. There are tons of them. Uh it's just mm-hmm. this one is really 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 good. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them that do are not um there are i mean i think city of the living dead is a pretty uh smashing little picture uh there are there are exceptions much harder to show that (laughs) right between thanksgiving and christmas and right and you know and this having being being a christmas movie that is really one of the strongest made by a director of capra stature too uh to be able to show it for free (laughs) Oh man, that's yep. that's yep. too tempting not to do. Right? And you figure with commercials, you have an over three hour block. Yep. So you can like, especially when they were only three networks uh-huh. and like your uh, UHF stations, to be able to take up that much programming time mm-hmm. during a time of year when like network shows are on yep. hiatus and you're showing reruns. That to be able to show this over and over again and build like the holiday around it, like there's a lot of um, upside in the thinking uh, and the thinking for that. So just by the fact that it was so shown so much, it was like, well, it's on so often it must be good. Um, I think in like 1994, NBC gets the rights to show it. And now they do like maybe 
New Year's, like uh, Christmas sorry, Eve, th- day after Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas yeah. Eve. But even then, I don't remember. Now it is on streaming on a lot of platforms. It is. It is. And one of the things that happened was um, when this movie got taken over, uh, or when the copyright was bought up, they found another movie that they could turn into a cult film and play 24 hours a day. They And a Christmas story. Christmas story. So yeah. I, I that one wasn't free, I don't think. But um, that sort of became... the station shows. Yeah. TBS, Turner shows. Yeah. And, well, Turner, I mean, owns... If that's a Warner Brothers film, then, you know, Turner owns that library. So they could show it yeah. whenever they wanted. Um, yep. Which was one of those things. Um but yeah, this was it was just fascinating. Like in the seventies, um, I guess is this film was rediscovered, um, and people would start having watch parties oh. for it, and it just grew into this cult. Um, it's it's sort of it's kind of a beautiful story, and you know that yeah. this this film because cult movies are so often things that are. John yeah, and... that kind of thing, you know, movies that that you may not be able to share with the whole family. Let's put it that way. But right. but here you've got something that um, kind of anyone can enjoy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I think that it, it makes it a really unique uh, film in that cult space. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see this, it becoming beloved in the 70s because... You know, the seventies is probably my favorite period of American film. Oh yeah, the seventies and and the nineties uh, yeah. to me, I think, are two really strong periods of, of American filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But they were tough movies. Like yep. there are no more any. It's like a lot more shades of gray. There are no easy answers. There are no, and it is a period of filmmaking that is very often and very rightfully like critical of our country as a whole of the United States as a whole, you can go back and, and look at this film and say like, this is a better time. And it's not a saccharine picture of America. It's not no. white picket fence and everything is hunky dory, but I think you can see a time where well, there was a lot more self-sacrifice sure. and people were willing to make that. I think the forties were also maybe a comparable time in some ways to the seventies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they say history repeats itself. And I sure. think that there are elements of that that are true, where um, you're coming out of a, a war period that, and and before that, a, another difficult period. I mean, the sixty, like the whole sixties, was the war period, right? Um, but then the whole thirties was the depression, and then you had right. um, half a decade of of this very sac. I mean, the the, the scenes in this movie where they're talking about the war. I, I think to myself, I don't know if we'd be able to do that today. <laughs> you know, right. where the, the scrap drives, the rubber drives, all that stuff, they're they're just skimping on the food and everything like that. They're showing all the stamps and all the different things that they're all we doing. We couldn't get half the country to wear a piece of cloth over their face because right. that was considered too much of a personal sacrifice yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, so forget about like having to actually give some things up yeah. like you don't get me started on yeah don't get me started i because we won't this we have a time yeah on this will not. We, won't, we won't yeah make it. yeah yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm, i got you all right so let's dive into the movie itself here and i kind of have it 
you know, a little bit different from normal sure. and that I have is kind of going like beat sure. by beat yeah. through it a little bit. What do we think of like the opening, you know, the opening of this movie, we get the overview of Bedford Falls and the conversation between God and Joseph <laughs> and Clarence and it sets the action up. Let me ask you, I don't like Clarence. <laughs> I, I find, you know, which is a weird thing to yeah. say. It's like, hey, the most important character, you know, the one sure. of the most important side characters, like, I find him super annoying, sure. uh, played by Henry Travers. Who um, I do like. I, I do like Henry Travers. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, just, I'm okay with Clarence, but he's okay. supposed to be a little so annoying, just, I think. Oh, <laughs> he's, it but is. The, it's just a bit The thing much. is, I think what's funny is they set it up with this sort of uh, uh, supernatural element, but then most of the movie kind of ignores that. It doesn't. It yeah. doesn't spend a lot of time there. Um, oh, and I got to say, there's an argument out there by some people that say this movie is not a Christmas movie because only the last part takes place on Christmas. Well, I call BS on that because for two reasons. First of all, the actual in the film scenes for Christmas start at the halfway point of the movie. So that, that Christmas yep. Eve part is the halfway point of the movie. But technically, all of the flashbacks are Christmas Eve because they're being told to Clarence yep. on Christmas Eve. So the whole movie yeah. is a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah. This was pointed out. You can make the we case. covered this on our show last year and Michelle pointed that out to me. Yep. I was like, yes, that is true. So, so you can make, it makes an argument for watching this movie beyond. Oh Christmas yeah, for season. sure. You know, yeah. same with like Gremlins. Like Gremlins takes place during Christmas season, but it's not necessarily a Christmas movie. Um, Die Hard same is deal. a yeah. Christmas movie that you can enjoy any time of year. Yeah. There are certain movies like I'm only going to bust out between the day after Thanksgiving and say New Year's Day. Christmas Story, uh, A Muppet Christmas sure. Carol, which is probably my second favorite. Probably will cover that next year, uh, which I think is like, Michael Caine's greatest performance, Ohio and PCP. <laughs> shoot. I like to imagine him being like totally fucking on peyote and just interacting with the Muppets. Yeah. Um, but this you can break out. You really can. What do we think of these early scenes of like Robert Anderson and young George? I think they're glossed over at a lot of times, but they're pretty critical to they are. developing him as a character. They are. And I think, you know, maybe even more Mary <laughs> in some ways too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, and Violet, I, I think that the interactions between the three kids are, are great. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I love that they say, um, now remember what happens here. Cause you'll need to remember it for, for later on. Well, mm-hmm. they're not saying that to Clarence. They're saying that to us as the audience. Yes. Because Clarence doesn't need to remember that, what happens there. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, the whole idea is because George saves Harry, you know, all those people on the transport live and, and he becomes yep. a war hero. Well, that that's Clarence's doing. He doesn't need to remember that. We need to remember that. And yeah. I think that is a... a it's sort of fun to have that narration thing going on uh, without it being, uh, like I said, it's not really intrusive for most of the time. Um, right. Most of it just lets the story unfold. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that's effective. And then you have, um, I think Robert Anderson, um, who's also in another Christmas movie starring Cary Grant called the Bishop's wife. 
Uh, it was remade uh, into The Preacher's Wife with Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington sometime later. Oh. Um, that's a pretty good movie. Um, but this this is one of those kids that, you know, he pops up in these old movies around this time. <laughs> you see him a lot. You see the people that play Mary and Violet a lot. But um, the whole Mr. Gower scene is kind of terrifying, too. Yeah. Um, H.B. Warner... Um, was had been typecast because he played Jesus in a previous in the uh, King of Kings, uh, the, the silent film, Cecil the Beat Mill's silent film. And so for him to have, he was actually always grateful to Capra for giving him this opportunity to play a real jerk. Uh, <laughs> um, but at the same time, I mean, so there are things that are shocking here, like, you know, striking him, boxing his ears and all that. And the blood really coming out of his ear. Bleed. Yeah. Like really hitting that kid to the point where he was really bleeding. Like that's oh. not makeup. <laughs> I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, because and yeah, that's, that's some intense stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember watching that, you know, this past time. And I don't think that would be a shocking scene to 1940s audience. No. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I like, know. That just would have been like that. It's like my mom is fond of saying with my aunts, like they're fond of saying, um, if we, if you guys parented like we did in the 80s, you would be in prison. Right. Um, and they have a laugh about it. And, you know, then I call my therapist for an extra <laughs> session. Because right. um, they're not wrong. Like it was just accepted yeah. um, that that's the way it mm-hmm. was. Even more yeah, so in the forties. So, mm-hmm. or this yeah. this is oh, this yeah. is what nineteen nineteen. The nineteen nineteen. And w- one of the you things legally hit that kid with exactly <laughs> right. Well, one of the things that I didn't think about um, until the, sort of this post COVID post you just recovering from from COVID. So I, yes. I, I, I you know you know what I mean though. But even then, it was like for me, yeah. it was like it was like the flu. Yeah. You know, and I don't want to minimize anyone's experience, right. but I wasn't scared like I would have been in 20. Well, I mean, looking at um, what's happening in that movie, it's 1919. The flu. Ep- influenza. Yeah. The influenza. Ap- ac- uh, sorry. Epidemic. I should say a pandemic of yep. that period. So, I mean, and this is something that people going to see this movie in 1946. A lot of them would remember that uh, they would remember, you know, the, the yeah. so-called Spanish flu. And so I don't know why that never really occurred to me uh, before this last watch, but it it made it feel very um, modern again, you know, just that experience. You you get a clue early on with George, like he's going to do the right thing, but he can also be like that wonderlust is already there. He's also kind of a reply guy. Like... Hey, when brainless. he's with Mary at the counter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't you like, know where coconuts whoa, come from? Like, it's like, yeah, I know where stuff can come from, but still not like it. Exactly. You know? um, yeah. and, but he, like, basically negs Mary into falling in love right. with him. Um, like, he's that was like, that's his long-term plan. Um, and two observations I ha- had, like, watching it this time is, number one, Mary takes a long time to eat, like, a two-scoop thing of ice cream. Because <laughs> if George has gone for an hour to, like, quote-unquote deliver that medicine, sure. like, she's still there eating that ice cream. And I think he does put coconuts on it. Well, like, you're going to like these anyway. Well, she's 
And I love. Yeah. Well, she's staying there yep. because you know she's she's got yeah. a thing for George. You know, this is your bad. This oh. is your bad ear, isn't it? It's like I'm gonna love you till the day you die. I love that. Yeah. I love that little part. I mean, it's so sweet. Mm-hmm. And um, Violet yeah. is already being set up as as being who she is. It's like it's like I like him. You like every boy. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? I it's love great. That. It's you know, great. And, and now we're like, of yeah. course, like there is very little wrong exactly. with that. Like, go ahead and yeah. like. Um, but I like that this first interaction with Potter and George mm-hmm. when George is a kid is less about what uh, George's dad is arguing for and more about like, this is my dad right. and like nobody messes with my dad. Yeah. Like my dad is larger than life. Like my dad is my hero. Right. That's why, you know, the cigarette ad has young George running to ask his dad. Dad's always right. right. Yeah. And I love how that contrasts with like the next scene we get before the prom Mm -hmm. when he has that conversation with his dad around the table when he basically without saying he realizes he said it without saying it is it like you know dad you've kind of wasted your life like you could have been so much more than you are yet here you are running this like pennies and loan savings and loan that has never made a dollar and he realizes that talking through his dad that he's like, my dad maybe wasn't all that he could be, but he's helped so many people. And it's like, you know, dad, this is going to shock you, but I think you're a pretty great guy. I love that. It's like, I think of conversations that I can't have with my dad sure. who passed when I was 19. Right. And I would love to have these con, I would have loved to have those conversations with him when I was about this age. And that scene, um, just in the past few years has really affected me a lot more. Yeah. Um, because you know, my dad's in his seventies. He's, um, um, he's, he's starting to show some signs of his, of his memory going, things like that. Um, and it's just kind of, kind of makes you realize, you know, you gotta cherish the people you have in your life while you still have them. And, and, and that's, uh, and the fact that it turns out to be their last conversation, you know, but at the same time, it's like, well, at least he did say it. He did say, you know, I think you're a swell guy. And then, you know, did you hear that, Annie? It's like, well, it was about time one of you lunkheads said it. Um, but it's that moment when you realize that your dad is human. Right. He's no longer superhuman. He no longer has this, like, he's shrunk down to man size in that yeah. moment, but that's still okay. Like, the relationship could shift at that point. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a really, like, it's one of those scenes that over time has definitely taken on more meaning for me. Yeah. Um, we move to the prom scene, which. No one here is in high school. No, like, <laughs> not unless, even close. You know, unless you started high school and kindergarten at age 15. Um, just want to note quick brief appearance by Carl Switzer, who played Alfalfa oh. in the R Gang and Little Rascals That's right. mm-hmm. uh, series of shorts. Like uh, Capra actually directed a number of yeah. those. And this was one of those like, you know, Switzer's a really sad it story. Really is, I believe yeah. he died like a, a pauper. Um, as many of the R gang folks never really were able to kind of recapture that success. Um, but you see him here as kind of like a little shit weasel. He, he's uh, Mary's uh, first date, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. 
and you figure she's doing that as a favor. I think Mary probably lost a bet, <laughs> you know, in order to have to go on that date. So well, why don't you stop annoying people? Well, I'm sorry. Hey, you know, yep. the, hey. The, the, the deliveries in this are are just so well done. I mean, the the script yeah. is is very very tight, and um, yeah. the way Capra directed his actors to deliver dialogue, um, he he. He directed them to give their dialogue faster than normal, yeah. Because he felt that um, Hawks was kind of like this too. He felt that uh, audiences could collectively, when you're like in a collective in an audience, yeah. you could absorb it more quickly. Which I don't know if that's true or not, but it was their theory, and so I just thought that was um, one of those interesting things. So you see these kinds of exchanges that, and the great thing about them is they play very well on television now because we don't, mm-hmm. you know, laugh out loud in our homes as often as we would in a, in a right. in a theater or something like that. You don't laughter uh, is contagious when you're in a group, whereas here, you know. It, it's just, it clips right along. So, I mean, that's part of why the pacing still works too. Um, and it just feels like visually there's also so much always. going on mm-hmm. in these group scenes. Yeah. Like everybody has something to do and everybody is conveying a story. Yeah. So it's a good example of that non-static kind of filmmaking yeah. where, you know, a lot of early Hollywood, it feels so static. It's just like cutting back and forth between two people or everything is centered on, it almost feels like a stage play yeah. that is just filmed. I would say like, Todd Browning's Dracula is a great it is. example of this where like it's kind of a boring movie. Well, part of that is the um, early 30s and the sound mm-hmm. issues at the time. Uh, sure. So, and plus I I think I think Todd Browning was fairly uninspired. He was he was sort of mm-hmm. ripped apart by the death of uh Lon Chaney and he uh felt he had lost his muse. So, uh yeah. I don't know if he his heart was really in Dracula. <laughs> You know, yep. that that's my sensibility. But I mean, then you look at Frankenstein and Frankenstein's a very lively movie. I mean, very, right. especially when you get to brighter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like a whole new it's level. amazing. You know, um, I, I noticed I mean, I don't want to go off on a whole conversation about old Hollywood. But I mean, even you look at movies from the beginning of 1931 compared to the end of 1931 mm-hmm. and just the the leaps in filmmaking that were going on uh, in the yeah. 30s um, is pretty astounding so by the time we get here i mean filmmaking is pretty fully fleshed out by the Mm -hmm. time you it's all the sound issues have been sort of ironed out they haven't gotten into you know sort of the you know the nuance that you get with lucasfilm and the 70s and coppola and that sort of stuff but you still got a lot of stuff going on and so it works really well so what do you make of the chemistry between George and Mary, uh, you know, Donna, the lovely Donna Reed, yeah. who I do think transcends the role mm-hmm. as, as it's written, which is really the dutiful wife yeah. role. I think Donna Reed brings a lot more warmth sure. to that in between her and, and Jimmy Stewart as George. Yeah, and I think that um, part of what I, I it definitely is it's she's got a something about her that is. And, and this is, I think, you know, the one big element of the of the uh, I wish I was never born sequence, the alternate reality sequence that doesn't fly is the fact I don't think Mary would um, would be sort of this dowdy. She would have she would she takes matters into her own hands 
throughout the course of the film. I mean, she's very much um, uh, this live wire. Uh, I think she's, and so I, I think that's the one element that, is really untrue to her character Uh, because here you see just the spark of life and how she's very much um, uh, on an equal footing with George. I think I I don't see her as being um, so often you see the female characters as sort of outside of film noir where you have, you know, the femme fatale and that sort of thing are sort of, subservient in a lot of cases but this is i don't see that at all with mary i I think that a lot of that i think like you said is because of donna reed though and i think that uh jimmy stewart kind of just had chemistry with everyone it seemed like Mm -hmm. i i can't think of a movie where it's just a cold fish (laughs) that that where it's him and a and a a, a romantic leading situation yeah Yeah, he he brings that sense like Tom Hanks yeah. has this, mm-hmm. you know. Denzel Washington has yeah. this where they there's a star power there. It's like you're not like you're watching a character actor at work, you know. I'm not watching like a Joe Pantaleone sure. who is awesome, but he's a great character actor. I'm watching someone who I want to watch lead movies, but anyone can identify with. Mm-hmm. Like everybody can pull can kind of like put qualities of themselves they see in him and which is why he was so bankable for such a long period of time. Um, we have this scene with he and, you know, and, uh, and I'm not sure how much of this would fly again in modern times with poor Mary being left naked outside in a bush, <laughs> but it plays like it doesn't play as me. No. Like there's never a moment where I think George is going to take advantage no. Or run off, but he is definitely being a bit of a scoundrel here. He's just being a flirt for sure. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know this is a very interesting situation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that whole thing is. Uh, I've I don't know. My wife and I were laughing quite heartily at that yep. scene uh, when we saw this yeah. the other day, and uh, I just think there's th- this just this you see them just sort of melting into each. He's 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 resisting yep. this. You know, but mm-hmm. but she is so disarming to him and yeah. she's playing hard to get, you know, and yeah. I think that's great. I don't think he stays in the long run if there's not a Mary. No. I think, you know, like he stays because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll stay for a, a number a time for a right thing to do. But if there's not a Mary mm-hmm. in this scenario, then. Um, he will either run the company from afar or just check in on it or he'll be out and he will maybe force Harry's hand yeah. a little bit. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. He might play a little bit more hardball. Like that offer from Sam Wainwright to like get in on the ground for floor of plastics might seem a little bit more um it might be a bit more enticing if there's not like a Mary in the picture to have to like look forward to to come home to like look i would not mind coming home to like donna reed in her prime and you know like that would not be a horrible fate uh to have to come home certainly to. not um, yeah but we have this horrible tragedy where his father dies of a stroke um george sticks around mm-hmm. to help keep the company on its feet before so he can then finally go off to college with a clear conscience, knowing that the board has it in good hands. But now you have this 
first confrontation between an adult George and uh, Mr. Potter, played by Lionel Barrymore, who had probably been noted that he was Scrooge in the radio adaptation. Yeah, he was very famous for playing Scrooge. I actually watched, well... I dozed off, but I, uh, <laughs> this morning, the 1938 Scrooge, uh, I turned that on and he was originally going to be playing that role in film, but he, um, I think he was diabetic. And so he, his, okay. his, uh, he couldn't walk by that point. Yep. And so, uh, so when he's in a wheelchair here, I mean, he really is, it is, Did not it know is that. necessary yeah. that he be in the wheelchair. Um, and it's interesting you have, I mean, again, Capper being an anti-Roosevelt person and your bad guy in this movie is in a wheelchair. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that because I did know that Lionel Barrymore um, mm-hmm. was no longer walking easily mm-hmm. by this point. Uh, he's even in um, uh, You Can't Take It With You. Uh, he mm-hmm. He's in a cast and on crutches in that movie. Okay. So, uh, he, yeah. So in 1938, he had uh, Reginald Owen uh, take the role for him. He, but he had become very famous for playing Scrooge on the radio. But so this movie is sort of his chance to play Scrooge on film. Yep. Yeah. So I, I want to drop in a cut here, which is George's speech of the board in Potter about George's father is a businessman. Yeah. And the difference between George's dad and Potter and how. What is that, Gettys? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Well, here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're, the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. I hear that, and I... Number one, it's an argument that I think we're still making in 2022, which is really sad uh-huh. to me. Like It's really awful. And if anything, there's a greater separation 
as yeah. we're recording this, like the Senate is going to pass a one point seven trillion dollar spending package. Mm-hmm. What is included in that package is I want to say like forty billion extra on top of what the administration wanted for the Defense Department. And I might have my numbers wrong, but it's billions more in the tens of billions more. What's been cut from that package is the possibility of any extended child tax credits, oh, which, yeah. as we know, in 2021, lifted literally millions of families out of poverty. Well, I mean, uh, ironically, the child tax credit was wasn't that a Reagan thing? <laughs> or- no, I'm talking about the the, the child tax oh, okay. credit. That was extended oh, okay. about the three thousand to thirty six hundred under in twenty twenty one, which was then not. And yeah. it was there was talk of re adding it, but that was yeah, scuttled. Sure. And now there's zero chance of that being implemented with the division yeah. we're going to have. And folks, strap in. We're going to have two years where nothing gets done. Oh, right. literally nothing yeah, gets done. Yeah. Um. So we're still having this argument today about lifting up the neediest, not even the neediest among us here, but the working class blue collar that is scraping to get by. This to me is like the greatest argument for the policies of the new deal. Like when you look at what he's saying here, how long does it take someone to save five grand in 1947? That's right. Yeah. Um, But also this idea that like when everybody has a piece of the pie when everybody has equity and stake in the game, you become like a better citizen. You're more invested in your right. community. You're reinvesting in local businesses. The more, you know, if I, if you hand a rich person a hundred dollars, they're going to like throw it in the bank. They're going to invest it, whatever you hand that another, a, a working class person or someone who needs that hundred dollars, you hand a hundred people, a hundred dollars, that gets reinvested back in the community yep. and everybody benefits at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and Potter, you know, he wants to essentially own everything, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. which, and the only thing standing in his way is this small business, the little guy here. And I, I just find that fascinating. You could also look at that. I suppose if you're thinking Capra, he, I wonder if he's thinking of himself and RKO and Liberty Films as being sort of the last um, bastion in, of, in filmmaking standing up against the moguls, standing up against, you know, your, uh, your Louis B. Mayers and your Jack Warners, you know, and people sure. like that. Uh, I don't know. Um, Which is, I can see that. And then later on, he would go on to say, it's been the rise of the movie right. star. The fact that like you would have like movie stars now could command a higher sure. salary and much more creative input over the roles they played, which is part of the reason like Capper couldn't have this kind of like dominion over his right. films. It's part of like that disillusionment sure. and why he would turn to like, I'm just going to make academic yeah. films at this point, or he would preside over, um, the director's guild sure. later on in life as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of just one of the weird ironies, you know. Um, the, yeah. He just seems to be one of those walking contradiction kinds of people. Yeah. Um, I have this quote from um, the New York Times, and it's a review of the book. It wasn't such a wonderful... The article is called 
it wasn't such a wonderful life. And it's a review of Capper's biography that was published uh, in 1992, a year after he passed. So I'm just going to read this little excerpt here. Yet it is one of the great surprises of Joseph McBride's masterly comprehensive and frequently surprising biography, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success. The man who seemed to put the spirit of the New Deal on the screen was in reality a closet reactionary and a dogged Roosevelt hater. Frank Capra managed to fool just about everyone, even as even his wife was unsure of his political affiliations. Longtime co-workers who were Democrats assumed he shared their political conventions. convictions. Catherine Hepburn, who starred in this 1948 picture, State of the Union, thought him, quote, quite liberal, unquote. Others applied the term, quote, unquote, radical to him. And why shouldn't they have when Variety was calling a sympathetic character in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town quasi-communistic? And the Saturday Evening Post was reporting that in the Soviet Union, Capra was hailed as a comrade, but as Mr. McBride, the author of previous books on Howard Hawks, John Ford, and Orson Welles tells us, Capra was a lifelong Republican who never once voted for Roosevelt. He was an admirer of Franco and Mussolini. Yikes. Yikes on bikes. In his later <laughs> yeah. years, during the McCarthy period, he served as a secret FBI informer. Wow. <laughs> and... There's this idea that, like, this is the period of the philanthropic. I cannot. I I still cannot get over my cold, so I'm mispronouncing. The benevolent billionaire. The benevolent millionaire. Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. You had your figures like Rockefeller who exploited the working class for decades and then later in life tried to rewrite their own narrative by being extremely charitable. And this idea that like this is trickle down economics that if we sure. have it, we'll give it to others, but the government yeah. should stay out of it. But I don't right. know. I just don't. That doesn't ever seem to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, I, Bill Gates has kind of done the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's he's t- later in life started, you know, when he quit Microsoft. And you don't get to be in the position of Bill Gates without making some enemies and being being a being an asshole along the mm-hmm. way. There's just no yeah. way. Um, but again, trying to rewrite that narrative and being charitable mm-hmm. and things like that. So I I, I see that. Um, it's just a f- man and. It's just one of the things you wouldn't see from that he would admire Franco and Mussolini yeah. is shocking. Yeah. Uh, because especially shooting, he's also being a patriot yeah. as he as he was. I mean, I think that's clear uh, in his films too. There's very much an American ideal. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, the sense of of democracy and um, standing up against tyranny is in a lot of his films. Yeah. You know. He's an American immigrant success story. He's the son of immigrants. Absolutely. He's very yeah. much a, a success story. I think along with the immigrant story sometimes comes this idea that once I have mine, I don't want others to have it. And which sure. is odd because I definitely don't see that in in his films or especially in his work here. I think the the comparison of like 
Potter saying, like, as long as you shoot pool with these people, anyone can get a loan. He is really diminishing the value these persons bring to the community. You know, your Mm -hmm. policemen, your taxi car drivers, your bartenders, your bank tellers, just your everyday work about people. He's really diminishing what they contribute. Like, oh, they just shoot pool. They're a bunch of riffraff and flim flam where Mm -hmm. George very much recognizes their inherent value as people and says, like, if we're going to work ourselves to the bone, we should be able to come home to a nice home and a nice roof under our head and a good family. You know, like we should be not have to live and die in poverty if we're going right. to do this. And I just think it's a it's a beautiful message that resonates today even still. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the strengths of this movie is that it is resonant. Um, it, I mean, Mr. Potter, I mean, <laughs> you can apply whatever rich billionaire you want to that guy of any era. I mean, come on. Um, and, and you can see, you know, the little guy is George and Bert and Ernie Mm -hmm. and, uh, Martini and Nick and all these people. Um, we, we know these people. That's the thing. We still see these people. Uh, so, um, part of what makes a movie great, right? Is it just remains sort of eternally relevant. Um, Unfortunately, relevant in some ways, yeah. <laughs> but um, but there, there's definitely a positive relevance yeah. as well. I mean, I think the ideals of of um, meeting someone and falling in love and um, having dreams that don't happen that's very relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, but having those dreams not necessarily be the best thing for you anyway. Yep. Uh, I think that's a that's a strong message. I mean, maybe maybe the life that you do have is better than the one you thought you wanted. Yeah. I mean, those are some pretty powerful and frankly, universal themes. I think, I think we all have felt something of those things at different times of life. Like you said, like Potter only wants George's savings and loan because he doesn't already have it. He has everything else in the town and it's pointed out later on. He's like, you have all of these other things you, he, but this man's just built a little community right here and he's been smart about it and the homes are doubling in value. Uh-huh. Um, you can't really ignore it anymore, but it becomes this obsession with him. I want yeah. it because I don't have it yet. And someone even yeah. points out, like I think George even points out, you have more money than you could ever spend and you can't take it with you. Like Potter's accruing wealth and he's accruing things. But none of those things hold any meaning to him. There's no value to him. Whereas Uh you go into the homes that like the Bailey homes and they are pretty and they're nice and people want Mm -hmm. to live there. And it's something there's something this when you at the end of the day, when both men eventually die, what what can you look back at with Potter and say, well, what did he actually have? Versus look at the mm-hmm. legacy that's going to be left behind, that, that George's dad left behind, and that George continued. Uh-huh. And there's a sign uh, underneath uh, the portrait of of George's father on the wall. Mm-hmm. And it says something to the effect, and I, this is another thing I didn't really notice until seeing it on the big screen. It says something to the effect of uh, the only thing, um, the only wealth you accrue in life is what you give away yeah. or something a- along those lines. Yep. Or what you did for other people. Yeah. 
and I, I think that's sort of the, um, again, that's such a key theme of the film. And one of the things that's interesting is, you know, George's father is not a businessman. That's what right. they say. George, however, is. Yeah. He is successful. He makes, uh, he's able to um, create these homes. Like you said, they're making a lot of money. They have the one guy who comes in for Mr. to Mr. Potter and says, you know, pretty soon I'll be asking yeah. him for a job. Yeah. You know, so I find that fascinating that you have this, this guy who is the represents sort of the small business and yep. the success of the little guy uh, and the importance of that, I think in Capper's world yep. as well. You get you know. the feeling from this movie. If George had done this by traveling from community to community, like hopped on the train and basically sure. worked as like a, in parks and rec, like Rob Lowe and, and uh, Ben <laughs> right, and Adam right, Scott's right, right. characters are this, they go yeah. from city to city, they rebuild it and they move on to the next sure. one, essentially. If he was able to do that, there would have been a great satisfaction in what he had done. Yeah. But because he'd spent all of his time in Bedford Falls, that there's like that wistfulness that turns sure. to anger as time goes on. Um, sure. Moving on a bit, I thought we'll do this in a tight 90. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's tough Christmas when we're talking about 2023 this movie. at this point. Um, <laughs> is Harry a dick? Uh, I think he's. Is he I selfish? Think, hmm, uh, oh man, it's hard to say. I think there is a there is something in that where he's 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 more willing to. Um, he knows that George is gonna what George is gonna do. So I think there is a selfish streak there. He is looking out for himself mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, but at the same time when you know what he does yeah. he puts himself in harm's way and um very comes very close to death himself yeah. um boy i don't know it's really it's just you know, for for his, but but it's a, it's an interesting thought it, it's it is the you know. secret wedding not even a secret girlfriend i know secret i know wedding I know. and then when he starts like yeah. well you've held down the fort for oh i just got to go back and get he knows what George is going to do. Like he sure. knows how to play that, those strings with George. And you can make the yeah. argument too, that like Mary has caused all of this by throwing that rock through the window. Like, yeah, has yeah I've, I've heard that. <laughs> she has witch's powers. I've heard that, mm -hmm. that idea before. I think it's pretty funny. One of the things though, that, okay, you, you mentioned the scene where, where Harry comes home mm -hmm. and the train, that is one of my two favorite shots mm -hmm. in the movie is where it just cuts to George's face. And you can you can just yeah. watch Jimmy Stewart thinking. And you know exactly what's going yeah. on inside his head. And he just travels over to where Harry's new wife is. And then he just, the smile comes over yeah. his face. That is a masterclass in acting, in capturing the moment. I mean, what a... <laughs> that is an incredible moment. And when he says, it's a good job. Chills. Is it a good job? Yeah. You know, he wants yeah. to make sure that if he's going to do this, his like, brother's taken his brother care of. Is yeah. taking care of. Um, we cut to the wedding. You get that great gaff, or I guess like the whole like Uncle Billy yelling, I'm all right, is a yeah. off screen uh, PA basically fall, uh, knocking everything over and 
Yeah, I don't know if that's true. Well, I mean, I've heard that rumor, and I, I, I kind of doubt that. I don't to know. Be I, I think I can see <laughs> that. I can. I apparently Capra like slipped the PA ten bucks, which would be about a hundred and fifty now. Um, okay. Okay. That's what some quick thinking there. Um, okay. We get okay. George and Mary's brief courtship. That really weird scene where he's like, just again, completely aggro with Mary, like completely yeah. kind of nigger. Um, and I don't, it, it's. I don't know. That scene is magical yeah. to me, though. I mean, where he's just, where they're on the phone together and, and he's just kind of everything, he's, he's, he's repressed. Mm-hmm trying to hold the, those feelings back that he had for her back in at the dance. Mm-hmm. And, but then, you know, he's smelling her hair mm-hmm. and, and he's seeing her there and it's just like, it's all rushing back. I think is what's going on. Yeah. And I don't know that, that scene, I, I find it sort of, I know with it, maybe it doesn't play in 2022. I mean, in the same way, but mm-hmm. For what it's doing, I think it's it just yeah. works for me. It's a magical element to it. And he knows Mary so. his options. I mean, he knows that, like, yeah. if I blow this, she'll find someone. Like, oh, Mary's yeah. not going to be a spinster. Like, that's all I know. Nah, no. Nah. Sorry. That's not there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong no. with not wanting to be partnered. Well, we the don't problem want, is... That's n- why it's funny. Like, this world where, like, yeah. Mary doesn't have a partner is the worst. Like, that's not the worst thing in the world. Well, the, honestly, if she didn't have a partner, she would be just as strong yeah. and uh, tenacious as she is in these earlier scenes. So I don't, I don't think it makes sense to the character. Her, that's that's the one part about the movie that really bothers yeah. me. Uh, and it's not that she's unmarried, and it's not that she's a librarian. It's that she is sort of a wilting violet. You yeah. know, that's what bothers me. Her and Violet would take off to New York together. Yeah, and they would open up their own sort of burlesque. You know, library. You know they it. would open up like a book lending <laughs> bookstore slash burlesque house that would absolutely tear it up. I, I could see yeah. that. Um, yeah. What do you make of the bank run scene? I mean, this is one of those. Well, this is one of those great yeah. moments, isn't it? Tom, did you get your money? No. Well, I did. Old man Putter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you've got. <laughs> yes, cash. Well, what do you say? Oh, Tom, you have to stick to your original agreement. Now, give us 60 days on this Okay, thing. Randall. Are you going to Potter's? Better to get half than nothing. Tom! Tom! Randall! Now, Randall, wait! Now, wait! Now, listen. Now, listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank, he's got the bus line, he's got the department stores, and now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple, because we're cutting in on his business, that's why. Because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken-down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. He's picking up some bargain. Now, we, we can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? I got Dr. Bruce to pay. I need cash. I can't keep Dr. Bruce's own faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! 
I got two thousand dollars. Here's two thousand dollars. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? Two hundred and forty-two dollars. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over until the bank reopens. I'll take two hundred and forty-two dollars. There you are. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got three hundred dollars here, George. All right, now, Ed. What'll it take until the bank opens? What, what do you need? Well, I, I suppose twenty dollars. Twenty dollars. Now you're talking. All right. Thanks, Ed. That's fine. All right, now, Miss Thompson, how much do you want? But it's your own money, now, George. Don't mind about that. How much do you want well, now? I can get along with twenty, all right. Twenty dollars, fine. And I'll sign there the you paper. Are. You don't have to sign anything. I know you. You pay when you can. That's okay. All right, Miss Davis. Could I have seventeen fifty? Bless your heart. Of course you can have it. You got fifty cents. I mean. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't understand it because it was like, what, what is this? You know, how, how, and what's interesting is at first Mary is like, um, you know, don't get involved. Let's just go. And George, you know, through his sense of duty, whatever, you know, he's, he's going to check this out. But then Mary realizing now that they're a team, she comes in and, and saves the day. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is, is you know, and then, you know, the one guy wants all of his money back. And then I love the part where, where the gal asks, can I have 1750? Yes, and he just kisses, kisses her. her. <laughs> I mean, so it's just like this great moment. And the the joy at the end of the scene. Yeah. I mean, they they just barely scraped by. And they're like, we, we did it. We did it. We're, we have beat Potter once again. Pretty remarkable. And then, you know, he forgets that he's married and all these kinds of things that are going on in that scene. And that whole idea too, with this, what struck me on rewatch was like the, 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 the customers in Bedford falls, like going to Potter and getting 50 cents on the dollar for their hard earned right. money and being uh-huh. happy to do it. You know, like right. Someone like, you know, the $242 guy being willing to walk out the door and get $121 knowing that sure. that is probably for us, like maybe a month worth of pay at this point mm-hmm. back then and being like, I will gladly give up a month worth of pay because it means at least I'll have something like that. Having to crawl to someone like that is one of those things that really, oh. and then George, once again, not only appealing to their sense of community, but having the foresight to know if this, if we close, this town is done. Not just like my business, but this town as a whole. And it's, it he's falls not to overstating and it. it all goes to him. I mean, that, that line is like, you know, if you close your doors before six o'clock tonight, you will never reopen. Mm-hmm. And it's again, it's sort of like this is the last bastion of hope for this town. And the importance of this yep. one business, this one person. Um so much to the point that he can't see it himself. Yeah, I have a George staying behind, and we get those. The, we get the war scenes. We get him, yeah, running on. And you see how much he wants to be overseas to fight. And again, like you'd said, Jimmy Stewart was a fighter pilot in World War II. He saw horrible things. the The whole yeah. war scene it's it's glossed over very quickly. I think maybe recognizing there's very little appetite for an extended. It's not what the movie is about. Um, right, but it, people would remember, and it would be fresh in everybody's mind. Uh, Harry's it goes through it very yeah. quickly, yeah. But, it, but mm-hmm. it's, I mean, by this point, it's the years fly by. Yes. <laughs> I mean, We're she has snapshots. 
Yeah, from from the point where she announces she's pregnant so until the end kids. of the war, they all of a sudden they have four kids. One of them's what ten years old, yep. and yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, now he so looks nothing the same, much. You know? Nothing, nothing much happened. Yeah, you know, in, the, in this. <laughs> um, but you get like you get the the shots of like these expansive park that he's built, this development he's built, and it's no mm-hmm. like you said, like one day I'm going to be asking Mr. George Bailey for a job. Um, yeah. And realizing like Potter's time might be coming to an end, like the time of it, which unfortunately is not the case. Um, the Potters of the world are still winning. Um, right. You see when Sam comes back, like I could have been on the ground floor here that, yeah. that I think it's, he is happy to give Giuseppe uh, Martini, his bread, his wine, his salt, and he's happy, like, what a thing, like, we're going to come and toast your home, and we're going to celebrate yeah. it as not just your family, but there's a community of people, you know, saying, like, welcome to our community, yeah. welcome home. That's right. And home That's is more right. than just those four walls. It is everybody within this area, but then kicking the door when no one is yeah. looking, yeah. kicking the but door But before closed. that. I know, but I love Mary's reaction before that. She says, Sam Wainwright, he goes, oh, who cares? She, um, one of the things that, again, this was the first time I noticed this. During this scene, she's holding her her belly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had never noticed that before. Mm. So she knows she's pregnant. Because, I don't know, I, 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 my wife, when she knew she was pregnant, she would start, doing that she would like put her hand on her on her stomach and uh so mary knows that there's a bigger picture going on here things that are more important than sam wainwright's ground floor and so she she i think understands what george is going through emotionally in that moment Mm -hmm. but she's got her mind elsewhere she's also really happy where she is like she she went to new york she traveled she did the whole college thing and she's like i miss home yeah. For some of us, that's what it is. Like, I mm-hmm. I regret, I to a degree regret where I live, right? I feel just outside of the outskirts of the city enough where it's harder to get to than it used to be. And my friends sure. are closer to there. Uh, and I have a bit of that, like, oh, I kind of want to go somewhere else. I get that. But I also like, I like coming home. I like being in my community. Mm-hmm. I like the things like the restaurants, the bookstores, the theaters that are around me and there's a comfort that's there like my i sure spending time with my wife and my daughter's at an age where she's independent but also appreciates time spent with us there's a nice mix Mm -hmm. and it's like it's nice yeah there's something nice about that yeah yeah you know and i'm i'm a george bailey i live 10 minutes from the home that i grew up in uh for better or worse that's just kind of how it ended up but my mom is almost 80 and she lives in the home she grew up in she bought it back and they Mm -hmm. rebuilt it and like that's where she lives and her sister lives underneath her yeah oh wow so it's like that house has always been in the family it's like for some it's like they're it's they're happy if you would mm-hmm. ask my mom if she was ever unhappy, she'd look at you like you had four heads. So we get the temptation to join Potter. Like he, the next scene is him puffing a cigar and sitting down. You get that great visual of sinking into the chair. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who is George angry at here, himself or Potter? Oh, gosh. 
I think he's angry at a lot of things. I think he's angry at his uh, father for dying in a way. Mm-hmm. I think he's, I think he's angry at Harry for, you know, taking a job elsewhere. Um, I think he's angry that at himself for never just taking the chances that he feels he should have taken. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there are just lots of things, you know, that that are going through his mind during this scene. Yeah. And uh, it, it's that longing to to have mm-hmm. done things that you didn't get to do. Yeah. Um, that only compounds, you know, when he gets home and finds out Mary's on the nest, right? Yeah. Which I think is one of my favorite lines in the movie. Because they couldn't say pregnant under the Hayes Code. So, <laughs> anyway. But... But George, you know, just just the the scene ends up. It, it's this great sense of, uh, I think, Capra's mastery of tone as well, because he takes that scene where he just says, "Oh, the answer. I don't have to think about it. The answer's no," and he just kind of goes off, and then it sort of ends on a joke. Yep. Well, that goes for you too. Um, but you know, he's going home and he's thinking about all of those things that he wanted to do. You know, you want the moon, I'll throw a lasso around yeah. it, all of that. And uh, it would have been like a life changing yeah. amount of money. It would have it would been have. Mm-hmm. travel overseas yep. to New York. It would mm-hmm. have changed his life. And there's a part of him that could justify it by saying, well, I'm still working for these people. Right. I'm still building mm-hmm. our homes. And you could see it would be, again, that compassionate corporation. Um, yeah. You know, every June, every corporation comes out with like pride wear for one month. Right. And they profit. Right. For one month. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would happen well, after and... three years when that contract is up mm-hmm. and now George is out and Potter owns all of these homes? Right. Well, just that moment where he shakes his hand yeah. and, and he sort of wipes it off mm-hmm. is like he's shaking the hand of yeah. the devil himself mm-hmm. in that scene. And uh, and I think we all yeah. think about the compromises that we have to make. And you see mm-hmm. him having to think about those compromises that he would have to make in order to do something. And he just can't stomach it. I think it's great. It's a powerful scene. I feel that anger is turned inward at himself just because I almost gave in. And he's angry at himself for yeah. even being tempted to do so. Sure. Yeah. It's yeah, honestly, the older I get, sort of these kinds of scenes are the ones that start standing yeah. out to me yep. more. Yeah, you more know? so than the mm-hmm. other things. So we get to the yeah. breakdown, which is one of my favorite moments in the movie. I, right. you know, I think as a parent, I think a lot of us reach that point. Um, I think George's weakness is his loyalty. Like that strength of being loyal is also his weakness because Uncle Billy should never have been... He couldn't remember George's wedding day. I know. Um, He should have never been allowed anywhere near $8,000. That's right. Is is (laughs) Uncle George, is he an alcoholic? Uncle Billy? Yeah, I think he is. I think he is. I I think he's, um, I think that's implied. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I, I don't know. He's, he's. He's just not the smartest bulb. No. I think he was uh, brought into the business because 
of, uh, you know, I keep forgetting George's dad's name, yeah. but um, his, his compassion. Yeah. It's like my, my brother needs a job. So yeah. um, here you go. And again, George keeps him on as well. Because, yeah. um, I mean, they have, you know, like Eustace works in there. He seems to actually know what he's doing. And yep. why not have him do yeah. these things? Uh, it's, yeah, the Uncle Billy character is one of those, and it's kind of tragic. Yeah. Uh, you know that if George ever handed the business to Harry... Harry would not only be successful, but maybe even like more successful because he'd be a bit more yeah. cutthroat. I think he'd be a bit more. I think he would too. Know, and I don't, I'm not saying he'd be another Potter, but I think he would be like, "Yeah, I'm going to benefit from this." You know that if if mm-hmm. if Pa Bailey, because it's just as Pa in the in the credits here, if he right. left the business to Uncle Billy, you know that it would go belly up within about thirty days. Yep, it would be like Twitter under Elon Musk. Like it's on its last. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. um, so you get yeah. that f- flash, and that the one of the things I think we for, we think of this like George can get violently angry. You know, yeah. like he's very human. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, I'm not going to go to jail, and he like basically tosses Billy around, and he comes yeah. home and he kicks over the. Um, kicks over his models and I think you get like my favorite scene and it hurts as an educator but when he is on the phone with his <laughs> he yells, teacher oh, man, and then yeah. the teacher's husband, husband who is calls, yeah. so broken up over his wife's misfortune that the husband then goes to the bar to drink alone on Christmas Eve like that's right. how distraught he is um, uh, but yeah you get like he's fucked and he feels like mm-hmm. every all the good I've done and I am going to take the fall for this. And it's crushing. Oh, yeah. And that whole, that's the scene that just sort of rips me apart um, more than anything is where he's, you know, he's yelling at the teacher, you know. and But then it's got this sweet little scene between him and Zuzu yeah. in the middle of that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, just these sort of wild swings back and forth that... I don't know. They work They They manage to, you manage to be emotionally invested in every turn that it takes. And mm-hmm. I, I, that's, that's a skill filmmaker at work, you know, yeah. um, and definitely can't deny that yeah. talent there. And it's not that, you know, you get, to, you get to this moment on the bridge and when you get to, it's not George is like the humble, never does anything wrong poor him at this point he's screamed at his kids and wife he's gotten in a bar fight he's driven drunk through the town and like smashed into a tree like this is a man with deep human flaws which i think is and he's been told and he's been told by potter that he's worth more dead than alive yes which is ringing in his head yeah you know it's like the world would be Mm -hmm. better off if if mm-hmm. I killed myself and yeah. they got my yeah. kids got them, yeah. my wife and kids got the money so, from this life insurance policy. So, so here's where I have this quote from the, an article from Salon. It's a wonderful life. The most terrifying movie ever made by Rich Cullen published back in 2011. And it's this great. It's a great article, but this is just a brief little quote from it that really stuck out. If you were to cut, it's a wonderful life by 20 minutes. It's true subject would be revealed. In this shortened version, 
George Bailey, played by a Jimmy Stewart, forever on the edge of hysteria after being (laughs) betrayed by nearly everyone in his life, after being broken on the wheel of capitalism, flees to the outskirts of town, Bedford Falls, New York, where he leaps off a bridge with thoughts of suicide. And it's a wonderful piece of writing. Like that right there really sums it up. And it's a great article. I'll link to it in the notes, folks. Um, Mm -hmm. And it sums up his... Sums up his dilemma, and Brian, I have to. We get Harry, we get this idea not only like what would it be like if I was never born. Pottersville looks kind of like I can see reading that <laughs> quote from, from Capra how he would think this is hell. He would, I know, Pottersville I know. looks like a swinging good time. Man. <laughs> no, Michelle and I had that same conversation on our episode of this, too. It's just and it was redone, uh, in Back to the Future, yeah. too. You know, it's that the town that Biff owns is yeah. like, hey, it's a luxurious yeah. hotel casino. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I know lots of pool places, lots of, you know, gentlemen's clubs, mm-hmm. let's say. You got boxing, um, you got gambling, you got dancing. Yeah. yeah. You know, like it looks like, I don't know what Violet's job is. Like she's getting dragged out. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever's going on there. Yeah. It's like. She got herself in trouble again, whatever she did. It kind of looks like the kind of place George would want to have traveled to. (laughs) It's like like it's it's miniature Vegas here, you know, Uh, but I know that's that's one of those things that unfortunately you look at it and go, "Eh, it didn't really age that well, but you know, maybe in the 40s. Okay. Terrible in the 1940s, like different. Different times, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, I think they now, don't have the movie theater, though. No, they I mean, don't. That's, okay, that's... then I don't want to live in that world, then. Yeah. I am very happy <laughs> that even though it's not the greatest theater, I have a little theater, a three-minute mm-hmm. drive from my house, if need be. Nice. Um, yeah. I would say if you redid this now, you would have to show the soul-crushing poverty that is suggested yes. throughout the movie and maybe some crime mm-hmm. and not, um, you know, like the, the terrors of the... Um, mini skirt and the exposed knee right. Calf, right? right well we do find out you know things like uh, about the individuals themselves you know like bert uh True. who you know his wife left him um he's living in a shack in yeah. pottersville you know um, a van down by the river van down by the river he's barely making it by um so i mean there there is that element going on um but it, you're right. It doesn't spend a lot of time showing us what what this looks like uh, as far as the negative effect on the people. I mean, I don't know exactly what's happening to Violet. She's being arrested yeah. for whatever reason. Which um, I'm sure it would not be the first time, even in the other world, she no, was thrown. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, you get that impression yeah. why she's going to New yeah. York is to get away from trouble yeah. in Bedford Falls, you know. Which trouble in Bedford Falls would be walking barefoot at night, that scene. Where, right, right. Oh. You know, like, let's walk in my walk in my bare feet. Yeah, like, oh, dear. The it's humanity. Ten miles up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think what you get is the sense of no one's, even though it looks pretty lively, no one seems happy. Right. And no one seems connected. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's ultimately, you know, the tragedy yeah. of, of this alternate reality mm-hmm. is that um, there is 
just sort of this yeah. coldness toward yeah. other humans. Um, because, you know, like Mary, ugh, she just looks frightened yep. because, you know, she has no connections mm-hmm. in this world. Um, George's mother looks frigid. Yes. She looks I mean, she, suspicious. In... Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't let anyone in here unless I know them yeah. or, or they're referred to by yeah. someone I know. Um, the light in everyone yeah. went from, from yeah. Nick, from Gower, mm-hmm. from his mother to Mary, like the light in everybody's eyes is pretty much gone out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, the tragedy of disconnection, I think is, well, I mean, frankly, let's face it. That's something we experience now yes. pretty thoroughly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think the more technologically advanced we get, you know, the various ways to be brought together seems to, yeah only separate us more in many ways. And you and uh, so. I, with, without technology, you and I would not be having. Exactly. I know. I mean, right? it's, it's so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's, it's all bad. Right. Of course, you know, that's, I, I've, I've right. mentioned the same thing to yeah. other people I've met through social media and yeah. the like is as, as much as I sort of, um, talk about how much I dislike social media. There's definitely the upside to right. it. There's definitely this upswing to but, it all. I think the local community connections. Exactly. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can name all my neighbors. I don't know the last time I've had nah. them over, um, mm-hmm. if ever, you know, and I think that that is something that, you know, is, is we are losing or have in some places have lost and in other areas we're losing it. Um, yeah. And I think that's not a great thing. Um, well, I mean, when we came to move into this house, the, only person that you know welcomed us at all that was was sort of like the older yeah. couple across the street Same. you know because that's sort of the culture they lived in yeah. and came from whereas i think younger families including us i mean if we have someone move on we don't go and we'll wave knock on hey, their door yeah. you know it's like uh, yeah that's yeah. about it i mean i'll admit to that uh i think that um is is something like you said i mean the local connections are are just yeah. diminishing over time mm-hmm. um, i think you see i think that's what you see is the greatest thing that's lost here so yeah we mm-hmm. we go from that to i think the scene that everyone knows and associates with this movie is you know a uh mad and drunk George Bailey wildly gesticulating and yelling up and down the street in the middle of the night in the town square. No, we, we get to that great ending of the movie of George, like realizing like what he would have given up and maybe at least in the moment coming to some sort of peace with it. Yeah. And just, uh, yeah. I know just having those connections be found against like, you know, Bert, do you know me? Yeah. I, that's one of those great moments mm-hmm. um, in where it's just like, you know, I'll, I'll hit you again. Come on. You know? Yeah. And it's like, no, what are you talking about, George? Wait, you know me, you know, yeah. and my mouth's bleeding and yeah. Zuzu's pedals and I've got a all concussion of that. from the car crash. And... <laughs> Oh yeah, but in but. that feeling of like, and, you know, I don't the, the the whole like I'm going to jail, isn't it great? Like that's the part that doesn't quite ring true. Uh, maybe prison nah, is different but... in 1940. 
He's like, well, at least it's like Bedford Falls, I guess, you know. Um, but I think that moment when everybody starts pouring into the home and yes. you get a real for the I think for like a real sense of the scale and scope of how many people this one person has like touched and what that has meant to others for like everyone to come together in that moment is like really the catharsis of this movie and where you're like, yeah, that's where it hits. Yeah. I mean, Clarence's line, you know, you really had a wonderful life. Yeah. One life touches so many others. Yeah. Um, and just, again, the realization that um, even what seems so insignificant can have profound effects that most of the time we won't even realize yep. unless we deeply reflect upon them. Yeah. You know, uh, it's hard to know. Like you don't, yeah. Yeah. We're in education, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you've been in for a lot longer. So you've had a chance to impact like so many students lives. And I work like sure. really closely with families. And I know like this week I'm spending a lot of it is like gathering the gift cards and coats and presents and dropping them off. And like, handing a kid like a 25 buck gift card to target to get himself something. Um, And they look on their face when they get that. And like the amount of like, uh, I was walking in and there's this little um, student who doesn't speak a lick of English that I do lunch duty as a counselor for second grade. And like, I I don't like the second graders that much, but this (laughs) kid is so cute. And she like hugs me every day and I pick her up and spin her and she runs up to me outside. Oh, I haven't had my coffee yet. No, I give her a hug and (laughs) pat her on the head. And just like, you get a feel for like how many, I don't know how many, there are times when I'm sure you and I go in and we're like, I don't know if I'm having any impact at all. Like, am I doing any good here? And when you get a chance to see it now and again, yeah, I, it it's it really does. It means and more than a paycheck. Yeah, it does. It really does. And yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I don't know what else to add to it, to be honest, because it, you said it so well. Um, we get the happy ending. You get that like, he, he saved. Like I love like the warrant is ripped up and everybody yeah. is singing. You know, I think that's that has to happen. Like you can't. Like, the money is restored and then he's because now it would be like the money's restored and he's still hauled off in handcuffs. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I found this the, the last article I'll have quoted here. It's from December 2016. So it's uh, two months after the election of 2016. We're right on the cusp of the first the, the Trump presidency. And it's a very scary time. And there's an article in Vox from Emily St. James. And this I will link to the article in the notes because the whole article is in, is beautiful. And it's called It's a Wonderful Life is one of the best movies America has ever made about itself. And the crux of the mm-hmm. article is like we're as a country at that time looking at the post-war and seeing not saying that we're morally superior but seeing like what we're capable of when we work collectively and we work collectively to do good. And that's mm-hmm. very much what this movie is about. If we collectively yeah. work to do good, if we mm-hmm. realize that we're more than the sum of individual parts, this is what we're capable of. So this article is from towards the end of it. And it talks about the ending and not only the ending of the movie, but what happens after. So the movie ends in a moment of bittersweet catharsis but it is also wise enough to know that life is long and life is often disappointing. On Christmas morning in 1947, 1958, 1972, 
George will wake up with less and less of that memory ringing in his brain and might be tempted to despair again, to throw away his life or what he holds dear. George never did leave Bedford Falls. He never attained his most deeply held dreams. He got stuck, and that's difficult to discard. But what you do when you're stuck is often the best example of who you truly are. It's a wonderful life isn't an argument that George is a morally superior man, just that he's a moral man, surrounded by other moral people, and moral people try to take care of each other. The mm-hmm. great kindness pain of George at the end of It's a Wonderful Life suffuses every frame that came before it. It's baked in. Copper and Stuart, back home after the world nearly threw itself off a cliff, knew how easy it is to destroy our best qualities. They knew that humanity is only as good as it is kind, and they make a film about just that. Here in 2016, 70 years later, it bobs to up to us like a message in a bottle from the past. Do not let cruelty win, it says. Reach out, hold on, help. Yeah, that's beautifully said. You know, just and that's ultimately at the heart of this film, but you know, other Capra films too, is that idea of being kind. Uh that idea of it's it's so simple, and I mean, it's almost that's I think why why it was so easy to just write it off as corny, you know, is because it something as simple as just be kind to one another uh, and when connect in community, exactly. Yeah, yeah. When did being kind not want? When did that become something we don't want to do any longer? You know, that's yeah. So I think that's why that ending that to my brother, the richest man in Bedford Falls, like hold, like that's why I just lose it every time. Yeah. Every time. So any final thoughts? Um, this movie, uh, every single time, it just affects me so deeply and just doesn't lose an ounce of its no. power over time. It, in fact, I think if anything, it gains more. Yeah. Uh, I never get tired of this movie. Yeah. Uh, honestly, as soon as we finished watching it in the theater, we walked outside and it was snowing, so yep. that was pretty cool. I mean, that doesn't that's not a normal thing around here. We don't get a lot of snow. So yep. that was just like this magical moment. Yep. And I was like, I I could go watch that again. Yeah. We could go home and we could watch it again right now and it would be just as powerful to me. Um it's just a remarkable piece and I love it so dearly. Yeah. It's easily my favorite Christmas movie, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's just not even close for me. Yeah, so. it's it's a Christmas Carol told from the point of view of Bob Cratchit. Yeah, it's how mm-hmm. I see this. It's for the Bob Cratchits of the world, you know, like the Potter. You know, the, end, at the end of the day, Potter doesn't get picked up for you know stealing eight thousand dollars. Like he has eight thousand right. dollars more in his wallet. But he's still all the poor. Like it's just mm-hmm. it's nothing that he ever needed. Nothing he can really do anything with. Everything he needs is already in his, already in his grasp anyway. So who? It's yep. not about. You know, there's that great SNL skit. You know, the last ending, yeah. which is which is amazing. Um, but it's not it's about great. that at the end. It is no. really about the the the, the Bob Cratchits of the world the George Bailey's of the world doing everything they can to 
make this place better. Uh, yeah, that's our episode. That's our very special episode on It's a Wonderful Life. It's, you know, definitely outside of the norm of what we typically do here. It's just Brian, I thank you because I get a chance to talk about something not horror for once. And <laughs> yeah. Just, oh, well, I, yeah, I will. Like I said, I already talked about this movie on our show, but I, there's so much to be mined from it. Yeah. There's so much to be discussed. So I'm always happy to talk about this movie. Um, you know, it's great to talk yeah. about something so uh, like our, this with you. If our listeners, if the turkey is in the oven and it's still cooking and they've got time to kill and they're not done listening and hearing about It's a Wonderful Life, where would they find, what is your episode on that and where would they find it? Yeah, okay. So it was our episode from last year on uh, Movies for Life, mm-hmm. which is the podcast I co-host with Michelle Egan, mm-hmm. uh, who's been on the show as well a couple of times. Yeah. And um, we paired it with Scrooged. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun. That was, um, we chose our favorite Christmas movies. If yeah. you want to go a little darker, you could listen to our Christmas episode from this year, mm-hmm. uh, which was my, what has become probably my second favorite Christmas uh-huh. movie. Uh, Christmas Evil from 1980. Yep. <laughs> and we paired that with P2. Um, Ooh, okay. Which is a pretty cool little thriller. I yep. hadn't seen it before. And I, I liked that yeah. quite a bit. So, um, yeah. So we kind of went a little vicious Christmas this year. But uh, next year we're talking maybe doing action movies. Okay. Um, so, Die um, Hard and Rambo First Blood. Well, uh, it, actually, uh, I picked Rambo First Blood, and yep. she picked The Long Kiss Goodnight. So, Excellent. All right. Yeah. So you got a so, year? Do you have a year's worth of schedule? Of we we already have our next year scheduled wow. out. Yeah. I mean, we don't have um, we don't know exactly because we're going to continue to be doing our guests. Yeah. We've been we've been bringing guests on to discuss uh, favorite movies of theirs, uh, and so those have not been scheduled yet okay. but um we've got we've got some uh, ideas and some people yeah. we're wanting to talk to <laughs> so uh hint hint okay. there mike um <laughs> I'm game. I am game. we'd we'd love to love to have you on uh to um, talk yeah and you know i'm a little jealous i have no idea what i'm doing after fate we have some ideas you know i mean sure we reached out we kind of had a little powwow but like after phantasm ravager i'm like all right gotta pick got to start planning that's going to come up sooner than later uh and how yeah. about your writing where uh what are you working on uh well i've well i got stuff dropping at bloody disgusting fairly regularly um usually two or three articles in a month uh so just recently there was one about a couple of horror movies from 1972 and sort of christmas holiday horror and how that kind of came about and became a thing uh, so that is up there. I got a piece coming out on cat people before too long and yeah. So cruising along there and then, um, yeah, I, uh, my piece on silent night, deadly night part two hit man, matter vellum recently, <laughs> which I don't know. I, I don't know what it is about that movie, but I, I dig that movie. It's so bad and bonkers mm-hmm. and hilarious and, everything i just find it endlessly entertaining it's a so. clip show of a movie with some other really weird <laughs> i love the first silent night deadly night it is yeah such a nasty it's so nasty it's so mean <laughs> spirited like it's yeah above and beyond just being a killer santa movie it's just oh, like yeah. it's mean in a way that yeah. movies are, are often afraid to be 
to be yeah. mean. So uh, as far as us, we go, the pod of the pendulum, you can follow us everywhere you get your podcast. So, you know, please do. We've gotten some really nice reviews lately and we want to keep that up. I would say my goal by the end of 2023, let's hit 200 reviews and uh, see if we can get that rotten t- uh, tomato status here. So do <laughs> us a favor and go to uh, Apple Podcasts in particular. Leave us a five-star review, uh, rate and review us a few kind words. It really helps people find us, um, which the past few months we've seen, like, thank you to all our listeners. Like, we've seen tremendous growth, and I want to see that. Like, December has gone from being our usually worst month of the year in terms of downloads, which is understandable, a little bit of like horror fatigue um, to like, it looks like this month might be our biggest month ever. Like it might actually beat our October, which was our biggest month. Wow. Ever. So, yeah. and I think that's, you know, our co-hosts have been amazing. Um, I do so little promotion. It's really listeners coming back. And I so appreciate that. Um, you can hear my other show, psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, everywhere you get your podcast. I get to take over in January. Jen's taking a quick little break to recharge the battery. So we have some really fun shit planned. Uh, we get some, I already got an episode of the can for that. Uh, really excited to bring that to you. But listeners, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, thank you for spending some time with us this holiday. We hope wherever you are, you're having a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Happy Holiday. That you're with friends or family or people you care about. Uh, and you're enjoying yourself. Thanks for making us a part of that day. If you're just listening to this any other time of the year, yeah, I hope you're having a good day. Hope it's going well. So we are out. Take care, everyone. We'll be back with Phantasm 2 next week. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. Harry, how about your banquet in New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast (laughs) to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Had a boy, Clarence.